If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics, the twice-weekly podcast with me, Steve Richards, Thank you for tuning in wherever you are in the UK and indeed around the rest of the world. And we've got a lot to cram in in our time together. Uh, I know some of you will be already beginning to reflect on the local election results and the implications. If it's all right with all of you, I'm going to wait until our gathering together early next week for the podcast then uh, to reflect on that and await your emails and thoughts and reflections too on what those uh, results uh, tell us. But I'm going to reflect in a moment on the uh, just one or two elements of this uh, coronation uh, weekend and uh, then return to your questions. The questions this week, they're always brilliant, but this week, kind of even more brilliant. We've got insight into the way the NHS is managed, which is really interesting and illuminating and important. We've got uh, reflections on freedom, the theme I chose based on Joe Biden's uh, video announcing he was going to stand for a second term. This potent word in politics, freedom, which has been owned by the Tory party here and the Republicans in the US for decades. And there's a way of framing it, I think, well, Biden's doing it uh, for the Democrats in the US and could for Labour here. More of that later and other brilliant, uh, fantastically insightful and revealing and thought-provoking questions. Um, Anyway, before all of that, a couple of notices. First of all, Thanks so much to those of you on uh, Patreon who joined our live Zoom the other evening. Um, first time we've done it uh, on Patreon. I used to do it on the lockdown live shows under the auspices of King's Place. And it reminded me of that, but this was really fantastic because it was a sort of dream gathering. of It was sort of self-selecting, if you know what I mean. Um, we need more time, I think. I read all the chat afterwards. There were so many brilliant points and people who I've got to know, people who I don't know. It was fantastic. Um, And we're going to do it again. We'll have more time and maybe get it more technically slicker because I wanted to see more people and other people wanted to see themselves. Anyway, you'll get what I mean if you're on Patreon because there's a recording if you missed it. If you subscribe in the coming days, you can eavesdrop on our gathering and join next time. 
more to the point, those who thought, oh, yeah, I wish we could have more time to delve deeper and all the rest of it, do come to King's Place live on uh, Monday, May the 15th, because there is more space for us to delve uh, deep. And, um, God, there are going to be some rich themes to explore on that night. So if you want to come along, uh, you can get a ticket via the link on the podcast or go to the King's Place website. That's uh, Monday, May the 15th, live at 7 o'clock with a glass or two of wine, perhaps, to help us explore uh, with uh, lightness of touch. Also, this is the weekend of the coronation. As some of you will know, um, I'm a a Republican. It it seems to me that uh, this uh, kind of hereditary principle so celebrated and elevated actually is a stifling guiding principle for Britain. And here we all are subjects to these people who inherit these privileged positions. And it's all wrong. I think it's also slightly depressing, to be honest, for a country to be seen as brilliant at staging these great ceremonial events steeped in a way in the past, but can't run a modern train service, struggles to deal with health provision, can't properly clean the streets or deal with crime and all the other things that are going wrong in this dysfunctional country, but can put on a great show. But the thing that has interested me um, is there has been this great feverish period, really, with the death of the Queen and then the elevation to the crown of King Charles. And by the way, this is nothing personal about any of them. I think he is rather interesting and um, has um, some really decent instincts. And oh, yeah, by the way, in the questions, we've got more on climate change and growth and so on. Uh, He was way ahead of the game. But it's such a weird, sheltered, dysfunctional uh, lifestyle that... um, Uh, full committed engagement is impossible for these people. But anyway, when the Queen died, there was the inevitable uh, hysteria for days and days on end, people queuing up. And uh, But uh, the, the consensus amongst the commentariat, and one of the themes of this podcast, of course, is that the consensus, the fashionable orthodoxies, are nearly always wrong. And it seemed to be then that Britain would be in trauma for quite some time with the death of the Queen. Some of the most brilliant, intelligent commentators on the UK, like Andrew Marr, referred to the Elizabethan era and uh, wondered quite how the UK would cope in the post-Elizabethan era. And yet, when you look at what happened, the Queen died, Charles took over, and actually what threw Britain was not the trauma of that transition, uh, but the Liz Truss era, which followed the death of the Queen. Absolutely. You know, so, you know, instead of people thinking, oh, how do I cope? The Queen has died and she has been with us all our lives. I'm not quite sure how do we even get up in the morning anymore. We worried because Quasi Quartang announced an insane budget days later. And what happened was that politics took over again in ways that did touch people. And yet, a lot of the time, a lot of voters don't follow any of that at all, but are obsessed with the 
ins and outs of the monarchy, who's up, who's down, and all the rest of it. And it is a great distortion in terms of attention and scrutiny that these people who actually have no direct impact on uh, the voters' lives uh, suck up their attention when what goes on in elected politics doesn't. Actually, what touched us all was the catastrophe of trust, the attempt to mend the catastrophe, but also reinforcing the kind of Thatcherite orthodoxies of recent decades via Sunak and Hunt. That has been, in different ways, uh, traumatic. But has the change of monarch? Not really. And yet this weekend, the feverish excitement and hysteria, partying, bank holiday Monday, um, all creates the impression of significance when there really is no direct significance in people's lives. And I kind of find it all weird and disturbing, really. And I speak as someone who's a sucker for celebrity. I kind of, my heroes are as much, you know, some of the television legends from certain periods and glamorous, charismatic politicians as much as anything else. But this is mystifying, the degree to which these people are followed and obsessed about when, as I say, one dies in apparently ways that we're going to challenge a nation to function. And the nation becomes dysfunctional, but nothing to do with that, to do with the elected prime minister. And as we discussed on the uh, Patreon Zoom the other evening, we have a presidential culture in Britain without a president. So uh, I think it was Venetia Kane on the Zoom said, you know, why uh, change uh, the monarchy? We could end up with President Boris Johnson. But you see, we did end up really with President Boris Johnson for a time. He was omnipotent. What he decided went, whether it was on Brexit, how to deal with the pandemic. And we are coping now with the calamitous consequences of both those uh, areas of presidential might. But we pretend we don't have presidents, that we're in a party-based system with a constitutional monarchy. It's part of the reason why Britain is in the mess it's in. So there we are. There's my kind of negative thinking. I, I, I reflected in a similar way during the hysterical Jubilee celebrations uh, last year when I kind of mentioned that uh, uh, I was out for a walk and ended up in, I think, Dover or somewhere and uh, waiting for a train to get back, went to a pub where everyone was wearing Union Jack outfits and Union Jack hats, and they were all going to London for a celebration of this Jubilee. And then none of the trains were running, and all these people with their Union Jack hats were, oh, bloody country, nothing bloody works, but there they all were, raising a glass and with their flags, and it's all so confused and bewildered. But I know many of you disagree. Okay, so um, that's, that's our Rock and Roll Politics uh, Coronation Special. And now you will be relieved to hear we are going over to your questions. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it 
a real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Just a reminder... Uh, that if you want to join in our cooperative never-ending discussion, like I'm on a never-ending tour of live shows like Bob Dylan, the email address is steverick14 at iCloud.com. steverick14 at iCloud.com. Now, for those of you who are new to the Rock and Roll Politics uh, Cooperative, we have been debating and discussing how we get the necessary improvements in the NHS. We've been doing it for a long time. We've been focusing, as Tony Benn would say, on the policies, not the personalities. We have been looking at ways in which you improve the NHS and fund it. In the last podcast, we uh, got an email from somebody about the uh, over-management, as he saw it in the NHS. It might have been a she, I think it was a he. Anyway, we've got a really interesting uh, response, and I'm going to read it in full because it gives you an insight, really, to what's happening behind the scenes. One of the joys of this podcast is our range of uh, listeners is such. You kind of get information from the inside in a way you quite often don't in kind of, I don't know, uh, newspapers or the BBC. Anyway, this is it. Um, I'm quite senior within NHS England, so would appreciate you not using my name in this discussion, uh, which we uh, won't do. Um, anyway, uh, the recent emailer who wanted to reduce NHS management and use the ludicrous Tony Ben quote about NHS over-management is completely wrong. This is far from the problem in this country. The problem is the quality of management, which is often absolutely dire and absolutely never talked about. I've worked uh, the vast majority of my life in the NHS as a manager, so it's hard for me to make comparisons to other industries. But I have to think that the situation is substantially worse in the NHS than elsewhere. NHS providers rely on hordes of very junior managers with responsibilities that any external observer would think were well beyond their capabilities and a frankly unrealistic and unfair expectation to place on them. Meanwhile, NHS England is a sprawling mess of pseudo-responsibilities full of senior managers without either clear purpose or any achievements to their name, pumping out guidance and strategies with no purchase whatsoever. Far from overbearing management, there are whole functions which could be done away with without anybody noticing. Rules such as only being able to advertise vacancies on the unusable NHS jobs website makes it almost impossible to attract talent from outside the organisation. 
In an organisation like the NHS, which has to have a high degree of political accountability, poor quality management at the centre is absolutely disastrous. I'm certainly not an advocate of more management, nor do I think the biggest problem with the NHS workforce is management by any means. But the caricature of the NHS as full of overbearing managers is just not true. If anything, NHS management needs investment in quality and a constructive debate about how we structure our management workforce. So there we are. There's a view uh, from within, which I think is um, very interesting. I merely read it out. I don't know. I don't work uh, in the NHS. Uh, Lots of you who listen do. So I'd be really interested in your uh, take on that. But it seems to me um, that doesn't entirely contradict what the listener said in the last podcast about the need. This word reform is banded about, as we've discussed many, many times, in a way that is dangerously imprecise. But clearly, management that is effective with clear lines of responsibility and accountability. I've only experienced it directly in in terms of a publicly funded organisation, the BBC, where there are layers of management with very imprecise lines of responsibility and accountability in terms of the output which is what the licence fee payer is bothered about. And there is a sense that it's the same in the NHS. And the so-called reforms of the 80s, 90s, into this century have, um, to some extent, made the fracturing uh, of management responsibilities even more multi-layered and complicated to follow. Anyway, thank you very much for those insights. Some of you will profoundly disagree, I'm sure, so get in touch. We're just trying to, in the absence of a grown-up political debate, uh, we are the grown-up political debate about how the hell you provide an NHS that meets the demands effectively, growing demands in a growing elderly population and all the rest of it with the opportunities that arise with new drugs, new procedures. How do we make it all work? Um, And part of it is investment. Part of it is reform, but it's the nature of the reform. Thank you very much. It's quite interesting. I had an email linked to something else, but not wholly uh, disconnected from Moya Duffy, who says, I was uh, an NHS GP for 40 years Another medical member of the cooperative. We need all the doctors we can get our hands on, Moira, in our cooperative. I never had the time to follow politics before, but remember with gratitude the arrival of the Labour government in 1997 and the ensuing transformation of care. The targets worked. Yeah, we haven't really looked at targets very much, but it's really interesting. Exactly. The targets were a very clear form of accountability. Um, Now, people pointed to anomalies. you know, the NHS had to focus on X because of the targets and ignore Y. However, I it's interesting what uh, Moya says, it, that they worked because uh, you could measure precisely what was happening. You set a target, you had to meet it. If you didn't, you could ask why. And if you did, uh, th- that at least was a form of scrutiny and accountability. Um, anyway, uh, uh, Moy then goes on to say, I'd like to hear your take on Lindsay Hoyle. He seems to me astonishingly ineffectual and almost never challenges patent untruths. He doesn't press the Prime Minister to answer questions put to him. This was 10 times worse under uh, Boris Johnson. 
PMQs is an embarrassing, rowdy cockpit. Although I didn't like John Burko much, I thought he was a good speaker and was interested in your comments about him in the recent podcast about bullying. Yeah, I don't think uh, John Burko was a bully. Um, so, oh, yeah, uh, be great to see you in Liverpool. Yeah, I must do some... I'm going to hopefully do, as part of the never-ending tour, a proper kind of UK-organised tour. Uh, so, yeah, it'd be great to see you in uh, Liverpool. Um, yeah, I, I kind of agree. There is this absurd thing in the House of Commons that even when someone like Johnson is so obviously lying, you can't even, as an MP, even Starmer, hint at that without... Uh, you being told you it's unparliamentary and all the rest of it. Now that's not uh, Lindsay Hoyle's fault. Um, that is just a, a mad rule. But uh, compared to Burko, he is less ready, I think, to allow Parliament to be the forum that really challenges the executive. And Burko got into a lot of trouble for doing this, but it wasn't. Uh, Burko was committed to allowing the Commons to challenge government in a way that absolutely infuriated government. Um, but for a lot of the time, he was uh, Speaker in a hung Parliament, where government cannot be as mighty as it wants, and yet they blamed him. So anyway, thank you uh, uh, very much. Now, let's move on. Uh, one of our themes recently was freedom, as I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, Biden seizing the term from the Republicans in his bid for a second term. And I've had quite a lot, and I was saying, you know, freedom is a very potent term where you can frame a lot of arguments um, and turn them to your advantage. Thatcher did it brilliantly in 79 onwards. Um, and uh, Biden's trying to reclaim it from the Republicans in the United States. Uh, as ever here, Labour... Uh, struggling to frame a big theme around the sort of incremental changes they're planning to make. Yeah, so Blake Ford says, my question is about whether you think uh, the term freedom can have a big electoral impact compared to the state of the economy, trustworthiness of party and party leader. You briefly mentioned how Neil Kinnock used freedom in the 80s for Labour, I loved reading Roy Hattersley's Choose Freedom book, but it struck me that this was written in the run-up to a pretty bruising defeat in 1987. What makes you think it would have a better impact for Starmer today? And uh, Blake adds, hoping me and my friend Robert could enter the cooperative as its youth representatives. We both start university in September, and I'm sure we'll be listening throughout. Yeah, Blake, you, you've got the jobs. Um, spread the word amongst students. There are lots of students who listen, but the more the better. Um, so you're in. You're in as student representatives of the Rock and Roll Politics Cooperative. It's also a brilliant question because... Just for context for those who didn't less listen, in the 1980s, as I argued, uh, Thatcher seized the term freedom, but it could easily be turned on its head and become a, a term for Labour. And as Blake points out, uh, this is the flaw of my argument, Neil Kinnock did try in the 80s, so did Roy Hattersley. Roy Hattersley's book, Choose Freedom, is a very well-written, powerful case for how Labour 
could seize the term freedom. But as Blake points out, they were slaughtered um, in 87. But my argument actually is, Blake, that it is they were slaughtered in spite of trying to seize the term. And actually, very few noticed. Not many bought uh, Hattersley's book. Uh, Kinnock made some brilliant speeches on the theme that actually the state can be the instrument of freedom. Um, but uh, as is ever often the case, you know, in British politics, the focus in the mid to late 80s was on Kinnock's uh, battles with his own party. I've mentioned this before, Neil Kinnock has reflected often since, and indeed at the time, that while all the newspapers praised him when he, in inverted commas, attacked his own party or a section of it, um, all the voters noticed was splits and divisions and a disturbed party. Um, And it actually swamped some of the points he was trying to make. The other thing is that Thatcher seized the term freedom with such ruthless determination. It was very hard to get it back. That's no longer the case now, uh, which is why Biden has seized it. Biden noticed Kinnock's arguments in the 80s and plagiarized them. But he's trying again now in a more fertile political terrain because it is so clear that the state properly functioning is a route to freedom rather than an obstacle to freedom. Look at what happens when a state is dysfunctional, as in the UK at the moment. You can't do anything. You might as well bloody never leave the door outside because it's all falling apart. Next, over to uh, Susan Brown. Listening to your recent podcast about freedom whilst lounging in a comfy chair and going out into the sunny garden. It seems obvious to me that the terms freedom and take back control are indubitably linked. Very good point. Uh, Yeah. As you pointed out, freedom can mean many things. It can mean freedom from poverty, homelessness and worries about access to health care. But it can also mean freedom to exploit others, the freedom to pollute our rivers and beaches with sewage, the freedom which allows private landlords to exploit tenants. Uh, Yeah, absolutely. So, what you have to do with the argument about freedom is turn that on its head, in my view, uh, and, and, and perhaps yours. So um, the freedom to be able to swim in the rivers rather than be unable to do that because they are being becoming the most polluted in uh, Europe um, because in the EU there are stricter regulations. I think you are absolutely right. The, fr- the term freedom is up for grabs. You can frame it from the right. And boy, do they do that very effectively. But you could also do it from the left. And do they do that? Not very often. Um, so I think we're on the same kind of page on that one. David Perkins, who actually yet mentioned this in the Patreon Zoom, uh, mentioned, what about freedom from big money donors in politics? Have you had a look at Seattle's Democracy Voucher Program? This looks a promising way to eliminate oligarchs buying power. Political parties funded from state funds raised by a tax per head of $8 a year, and each registered voter gets a voucher which they can give to their preferred candidates. Um, yeah, this is a whole new podcast, David. Uh, we talked about it briefly on the Zoom. State funding is the only alternative to the situation we have these days. Um, but it's how you get there in, in, in this anti-politics era. Um, one more on freedom from Tom Hickmore. 
I get a bit frustrated in hearing people talking vaguely about freedom. There are two varieties, say freedom from slavery, which is favoured from the right, and freedom you get from empowerment favoured by the left. It's no good being a slave who's released only to be unable to earn a living or have civil rights, so we need some of each. The state provides the empowerment, the right tries to ensure its rules don't inhibit us too much. These are the terms we should be talking in. On Keir Starmer, I think his talk of reform is less vacuous and slavishly Blairite than it appears, because he is fundamentally a reformer with real-world experience of reforming organisations. It's his thing. Anything else, be that tax rises being in or out of the EU, are pragmatic issues to be dealt with through this lens. I think that's interesting. Starmer has had experience of practical reform uh, as DPP. And when you actually listen to the small amount of detail we get about what he means by reform, uh, it, it, it does seem to be a bit more thought through than some of the uh, Blairite reforms uh, in Labour's second and third terms, uh, which were muddled in some respects. Um, But we haven't really had much detail. But you are right, he has had experience of practical reform. At the moment, he mentions the word and uh, everyone melts because it's just that's the effect it has on the commentariat in uh, Britain. But the detail of it matters, Tom, as you suggest, and maybe he will be a uh, very sensible, focused reformer. Let's see. Dorothy Aitken, who uh, also joined the Zooms, uh, talks about Keir Starmer's inability to be effective in the media and she worries about it. She says, do you think he has a difficulty reading the political zeitgeist? And is it a lack of political instinct that he struggles with? Or is it a communication Problem. As you have said in the past, a leader has to be a teacher. Perhaps this is the difficulty. She worries about this. I think that's an interesting contrast with Tom's question, because one of his strengths is I think he could be uh, a, a good, constructive, practical, problem solver, implementing sensible reforms, etc. Uh, but I, he is not one of life's teachers. He's not. He was a neutral public figure as director of public prosecutions. Now he's in this highly fraught partisan arena uh, as leader of the opposition. Um, and he, he, he struggles with quite a lot of it, I think. He's not a political teacher. You know, to, to be honest, I have discussed with him this thing. You, you always have to, as a leader, not only say you're going to do something, but why. You don't just say oh, I'm pragmatic about, you know, public ownership or whatever. I mean, why? What does that mean? And and, and you've, you've got to frame big arguments that make sense of the policy agenda. And um, he could do that, but he's not doing it. That's why I, I don't know if any of you heard his Today programme interview, 10 past eight, big moment, the pre-local election interview. I thought it was incredibly poor. Uh, and very defensive and hesitant and not giving a sense of um, owning the future in in ways that excite as well as being credible. Um, it's tough. It's really difficult. 
Okay, uh, now let's move on to another of our recent themes, a definition of uh, bullying in public life becoming very important, not just with the fall of Raab, but with others facing similar kind of allegations. Uh, David Fisher writes... Hope you're well. I'm going to start by repeating a previous nag that's about time you your never-ending tour found its way to the northwest. Oh yeah, another email saying come to Liverpool or Manchester. That would be great. Um, yeah, it's going to happen. Um, he says you might struggle to fill Old Trafford or Anfield. No, that won't be a problem, uh, David. Be you know making sure enough people can get the tickets. Anyway, he says as I understand. The definition that Mr. Tolly, who uh, did the review of Raab, used a term uh, to define bullying from a high court ruling on the ministerial code in 2021. It defined bullying as offensive, intimidating, malicious or insulting behaviour or abuse or misuse of power in ways that undermine, humiliate, denigrate or injure the recipient um yeah that's that that's a good point actually oh david said i'll be free to tune into the next king's play show yeah that's great david see you see you there before manchester and liverpool old trafford and anfield it is a good point that the tolly report did attempt a definition at bullying and that was it but of course even that is partly subjective i'll go back to the burko thing when he was trying to introduce all kinds of changes as speaker which the very small c conservative clerks unused to change of any sort profoundly disagreed with was he being to quote the definition offensive intimidating malicious or insulting was he misusing power or was he being assertive in ways they found they didn't like. I mean, it, it still remains, I think, uh, problematic. Uh, Heather Howells on the same theme. Heather says, in the long journey back from beautiful Pembrokeshire, my two friends and I were enjoying listening to amusings on what is a bully. In fact, I missed a turning as I was deep in thought. Um, that's the danger of, of, of listening to us a lot whilst driving in beautiful countryside, Heather. Uh, especially as you start formulating a response in your mind, which you then email. Anyway, Heather writes, whilst we agree with your view that the term is imprecise and used all too easily, it struck me that to some extent this is a moot point in that regardless of the term used, the important question is whether someone's behaviour is acceptable or not. For me, there is clear evidence that someone is consistently subjecting a number of staff to aggressive behaviour and is unwilling to be more conciliatory or show any contrition, which Raab's resignation letter would suggest. I agree that this kind of misconduct, this misbehaviour, needs addressing. And because Raab was ineffective as a result of partly as a result of the way he handled people. There was a good case for Sunak sacking him. And if Sunak decided not to sack him, Sunak should explain why. It's just this kind of immediate thing, oh, he's a bully, um, I think kind of is too simplistic, really, um, and too sweeping. That's my worry about it. But you're right, you know, the, the way you treat people leads to different responses from people. And he obviously got an incredibly <laughs> uh, negative response. And anyway, he's out now and he won't be back. Now, we're delving deep in this podcast, uh, Coronation Weekend, and um, we're now going to look at whether economic growth is a good thing or a bad thing. Mm-hmm. 
Alison Keyes writes, your correspondent Nick from Edinburgh. Yeah, just for context, Nick Ratcliffe from Edinburgh said, look, Steve, you're always saying who's against economic growth. And Nick wrote, I am, um, on climate change grounds, uh, uh, etc. Anyway, and, and he said, look, so you just have to quote me, I am, even if everyone else is in favour. Well, Nick, you're not alone. Um, we've got loads of people writing in saying they're with you. Alison Keys, your correspondent Nick isn't the only one who isn't in favour of growth, or not, or at least not the usual sort of growth. The trouble is that in most cases, growth leads to consumption, consumption of resources that may not uh, exist in unending supply. So what do you do about it? Uh, Alistair, if, say, you tell an industry to stop for the good of the planet, what do you do about the people out of work? There could be many thousands of them, and they aren't necessarily going to get another job. So you have to pay them decent benefits. You have to ensure that losing their job doesn't mean losing health care. But you see, yeah, you're okay. So we're on in a different cycle here. You close industries because they are a threat to the planet, and then you put people on benefit, but you guarantee their health care. But without economic growth, you won't have the resources to pay for these things. And so I, I just do not see how you can argue that economic growth is a uh, an objective you should not be aiming for because that provides the resources. Remember, especially in Britain, where there is this culture that tax is a burden and not an instrument to provide decent health care, say, you've got to get the economy growing. But, but anyway, look, I'm in the minority, Nick. Alison's with you and uh, so is Daryl Salgu writes. Uh, I'm pretty sure you cannot have infinite growth in a finite world. So when is enough growth reached? It seems Nick thinks now, and I think Daryl does as well. And he says also the way to help the poor in society is down to wealth distribution. Uh, More growth now is just a stopgap to today's problems. Uh, He makes a similar point to uh, Alison. I I just have to say that, you know, uh, it's much easier redistributing from a growing economy than it is for one that is um, uh, shrinking. I can't think of an example where it quite worked, where uh, the poor got better off in an economy that was uh, contracting. This whole dimension, it's like with the electoral reform, you know, you're swaying, you're swaying me. I mentioned that Nick, we had a big session on climate change in the summer, so you should do more of it. Well, I'm sort of doing more of it via all of you. So there we go. Uh, Keith from Finchley wonders what's going on with Simon Case. How's he lasted so long? The cabinet secretary who is being subjected to uh, uh, briefings from the media. The whole Simon Case, the, you know, has a kind of fantasy echo feel when a long-serving government turns on the senior officials who were plucked sometimes inappropriately to do big jobs as Simon Case was in the Johnson era. It's, it, it, it is part of a thing where everything feels tired and in need of renewal, including Whitehall. And I think Simon Case is part of that. I wouldn't be surprised if he doesn't go very soon. And finally, from someone who signs off as paid member Dell. Sounds great, especially paid member and Dell. Anyway, Dell says, I'm sure the theme music to your show, I get emails every week. What is the theme music to your podcast? Uh, He says it's Cliff Richards or The Shadows. 
from the 60s. I know I've heard this music from my childhood. I'll check on a few streamer apps and see if I can confirm this. Uh, And paid member Del says, I usually listen to your show, walking my dog around Bloomsbury Russell Square as it's a calm, quiet village so I can hear with little distraction. That's another great image uh, of a nice uh, area to walk around even though it's in central London, a village-esque atmosphere, and you're listening to the music, Dell, but you are wrong. It would have cost me a fortune to have lifted something from Cliff in the Shadows from the 60s. I did pay for the music. You go onto the site and you have to, you can choose things and make a payment for it. And I did it with this brilliant guy from the BBC when he set up the podcast. But I can't remember what it is. Um, I'll make inquiries as well. Um, because, uh, yeah, people like that, or some people don't like it. So, oh, that, that music, oh, geez, it's all too rock and roll and loud. But most of you want to know what it is, so you can fill your days listening to it. Anyway, uh, keep making the inquiries, Dell, as you're walking around Russell Square and Bloomsbury. Uh, I think that'll be it. Uh, we've got a bank holiday again, haven't we? So um, uh, plenty of time to reflect and think and lose your way uh, as you are doing so in a car or walking uh, because we are delving very deep at the moment and we are dealing with highly charged themes, future of the NHS, who seizes freedom and all these other big thoughts. Um, And yeah, what is the role of this... um, Uh, royal family in a modern context yeah well uh and of course the local elections uh we will get more information by the time you've listened to this probably a lot of information um but not by the time i've recorded this so more reflections on where we all are when we get together next and yeah in the meantime have a great time thank you bye (laughs) 